and the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The story of Satan in the garden, that we see that this is really the beginning of this moral thing that is relative to truth. And it has absurdly been ripped upon our society when we look at it and when we think about it. There was a famous preacher that once joked from the pulpit. He says, in English, they teach us that two negatives make a positive statement, such as, there is no way I'm not going to go. So he said, the way I figure it, if I know I am lying, and God knows I am lying, I got to be telling the truth. If two, pot, two negatives make a positive, he's kind of saying that. And that should kind of strike us funny because we don't think of truth as being flexible, do we? Truth can't be altered. It can't be amended. Truth, by its very nature, is consistent. It is reliable. It is a bedrock. You don't change truth. Truth is unchangeable. Margaret Thatcher once remarked to a reporter who was badgering her. She said, of course it's the same old story. Truth usually is the same old story. And that's true. As simple as this idea may seem, there are people who are in our world today, and we may know them, who literally work at undermining the belief of absolute truth. And they will tell you there is no way that something can be absolutely true. In fact, in many of our secular colleges, they teach moral relativism. And it simply says this, that doesn't understand what that is. It is the belief that truth is changeable. And they teach this. In other words, what is true depends on your point of view. It's relative to your circumstances or your point of view. Even in some high school textbook, inquiries in sociology declares there are exceptions to almost all moral laws depending on the situation. What is wrong in one instance may be right in another. So just think about that. To move on our point of view, check out this picture about this whole idea of this idea. So you've got a, a six or a nine on the floor and you're looking at it from each angle. Who's right and who's wrong? Okay, both are right, and both are wrong at the same time, and that's what the world wants to see on everything, even on absolute truth. It depends on which side you're standing on, if it's going to be true or not, and that's a funny way of saying it, and it's a true picture, but not when it comes to absolute truth, not when it comes to God's truth. As far as who is right, it comes down to this. Unless you knew my point of view, and unless I realized you were looking at it from another point of view, one of us has to be wrong. And it sounds reasonable on one end of it, dealing with attitudes like tolerance and personal opinions. I'll give people their opinion. Doesn't mean I have to believe their opinion. Doesn't mean I have to grab onto it and walk away with it. But if we use that standard when examining morality, and we say, well, it depends on your opinion, depends on your point of view, if we look at it that way, there are no moral absolutes. That means anything can happen at any time. It depends on what I want to do, on how I think about it or the situation that I am in. And all we're left with is this flexible standard regarding what is morally acceptable. 
And with that, a newfound flexibility, we become this adrift society. And we've become this adrift society whose principles are based upon what the most people agree to. You know, if we get this group that agrees enough and they protest enough and they say it enough and they yell enough and they do all these things enough, then all of a sudden, morality shifts to the way they want to go. It becomes acceptable for the ones who cry the loudest, yell the loudest, protest the most. And it's driven by what's popular at the time. But moral, being relative morality, rejects the idea that there is absolute truth. In fact, in your outline, it says this. Those who reject absolute truth are absolutely sure there is no absolute truth. If they reject it, then they better be absolutely sure there's no absolute truth. Some of the principles of this are simply this. They'll say, well, there's two sides to every story, right? You've heard that. There's two sides to every story. They'll say there are exceptions to almost all moral laws. They'll say no one has a right to say to someone else's activities they are morally wrong. You might say, well, that's well and good, but Kurt, why are you telling us this? I'm saying this because we live in a day and age, and it's nothing new, where nobody wants to believe in absolute truth. In fact, they want to reject truth. In fact, clear back in 1994, Newsweek declared this. It says, despite the call for virtue, we live in an age of moral relative truth. That's not relative today. Even over the past decade, surveys have found four out of every five adults don't believe in moral absolutes. Four out of every five adults. They even took this to the high school level. You know what the ratio was? Exactly the same. Four out of every five high schoolers don't believe in moral absolute. But then they also found that four out of every five also claim that nobody can know for certain whether or not they actually know what truth really is. Quick question. Do we know what the truth is? Do we absolutely know what the truth is? And this may help explain why the majority of teenagers in that survey, 57% said that lying was sometimes necessary. Not merely convenient or common, understandable or acceptable, but necessary to lie. You know, I say that about high schoolers, but you know, I would probably go to say adults are the same way. We don't want to do something, so we eh, tell a little lie. You know, we'd rather sit at home and watch the IU basketball game than go do something else for somebody else. I'm busy. I can't do it while we're sitting at home watching Bobby Knight come back to Assembly Hall for the first time in 20 years, you know, type thing. So we tell a little white lie. Is that completely wrong? Is that wrong to tell a white lie? I'll let you decide for yourself. So how do we get people to the point where they reject absolute truth? How do people get there? How do we get a society? How do we get to where we're at a society as people, as Christians, as believers? How do we get to this truth and embrace such absurdity? Well, the Bible's pretty clear about it. Number one, partly because of rebellion. Daniel 8, 12 says, says this, because of rebellion, truth was thrown to the ground. 
rebellion. We don't want to hear it. Like the scripture we said in Jeremiah, we became stiff-necked. We didn't want to hear the truth. Also, number two, probably because absolute truth gets in the way of what many people want to do with their lives. It's what I want to do. And I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody says. And we hear it all the time. Jeremiah says, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. It says, truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. This was Jeremiah. This is Old Testament. This is way back when. And we're still seeing the effects now. Thirdly, probably because people don't want God or anyone else in charge of their lives. In other words, you're not going to tell me how to live. You're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what's right and what's wrong. 2 Timothy says this, a form of godliness but denying its power, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. So in other words, we read the Scriptures. We may sit in Sunday school. We may sit in church but we still won't acknowledge what the truth really is trying to tell us. And when we don't acknowledge the truth, what are we doing with the truth? We're rejecting the truth from God's Word. And lastly, rejection of absolute truth has happened because Satan is still ruler of this world. Pretty simple. All Scripture tells us Satan is a liar. Jesus even said this, referring to Satan, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's Satan that's doing it to us. We understand that. We understand what Satan does. We understand what he's doing, but we still tend to listen to that side. So, if this world is Satan's domain, is it any wonder, really, that so many people reject absolute truth? Is it any wonder why so many people in our world today, even in our churches today a lot of times, are in rebellion, who reject God's authority and want to live their lives on their terms? Again, I'm going to do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You see, Satan has always attempted to undermine truth. That's been his goal from the very beginning. And we looked at Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan... And he's in his best form. And he uses three different ways at attacking the truth. The first way is this. Satan questions truth. That's all he has to do. He just simply questions God's truth. God told Adam and Eve what? Don't eat the fruit. God even said, if you do, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Okay? Pretty simple. And Adam and Eve took... That as a moral absolute. In fact, Eve even said, but God said not to do this. They believed it, and that settled it. But then Satan came to visit, and he started with this question in verse 1. Did God really say this? Did God really mean if you eat it, you're going to die? Did God really want you to believe it this way? I want you to catch that word, really. That's huge. Anytime anybody tells you, did they really mean it that way? What do they want you to do? Question 
what you believe. Did God really do this? Did they really say that? Do you really believe that this is Satan's domain? Do you really believe in demons? Do you really believe in heaven and hell? Do you really believe heaven is up there and hell is down there? Do you really believe there's more to this life after we die? Do you really believe in good and bad? Can you really believe in a God you've never seen? See, that's what the world is going to ask. And all Satan wants us to do is just begin to question it. Do you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, really? Do you really believe that? You see, inherent to these questions usually are, are a subtle mocking to us. And they're saying, you can't really be serious about this. You really can't be serious about what you believe. I mean, how can you believe just a story that's found in a book, in these chapters, in these verses, about a guy who showed up on earth, and you say he was great, and you say he's all these things, but can you really believe? How do we deal with people in our world, in our society, in our circles, who challenge us with this question? How do we do it? When somebody says, do you really believe this? Do you really believe church is important? Do you really believe salvation is important? Do you really believe baptism is important? Do you really believe all these things? How do we do it? It's pretty simple. You do it with the truth of God's word. And you know what? That's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus did it. Remember when Jesus dealt with Satan in the desert? And Satan challenged Jesus, attempting to get him to deny the truth of his mission. And each time, how did Jesus respond? It is written. And all we have to do is say, God's word says this. And if God's word says it, I believe it. What's that going to do? It's going to settle it. Not with them, but with me. You see, if it was good enough for Jesus, then I guess it should be good enough for us, shouldn't it? To be able to answer those questions. The only way to deal with these skeptics and agnostics and atheists and those who want to challenge the faith is to appeal to God's truth. The real truth. Jesus said that this of God's word, the Bible is truth. In John 17, 17. When challenged on what you believe, if you appeal to Scripture, folks, you're never going to go wrong. And here again, a lot of people believe, well, if somebody asks me a question or challenges me what I'm believing or what I'm doing, I don't know the book, chapter, and verse. You don't have to. Just know what God's Word says. Remember, Satan's first strategy was to attempt to question truth. Did he really? Second, Satan simply denied the truth. In verse 4, Satan just simply says, you won't surely die. I mean, really? You won't surely die. And this tried to influence Eve by giving his opinion. Opinion is what is at the heart of the lies of this relative truth that people want to believe. Morality by majority of opinion. In our society, in our polls, in our surveys, are rather taken to determine what people accept as right and wrong. And we do it by polls, and I guarantee you they don't ask the right people. And yet majority morality 
can so often be used to defeat that which is actually true and right. Because we go by polls. We want to see what the world has to say. And so many times it's wrong. There's a story of a preacher who was having a violent argument with his board. This is not here. Okay, this didn't happen at West Liberty. We have a good board. But I thought this was funny. Preacher was having a violent argument with his board. He was unwavering in his opposition to one of their decisions. Realizing they were getting nowhere with the preacher, the board called for a vote. The result was 12 to 1 against him, his being the only negative. Nonetheless, the preacher was adamant, and he prayed to God, show these men that I'm right. Almost immediately, what had been a clear summer day outside the building turned immediately dark, and a terrible storm ripped across the landscape. The board observed the development with some discomfort, but told the preacher that while that didn't seem to be an answer to his prayer, it was not proof that God was against them. So the preacher prayed again, and the ground shook beneath their feet. The windows rattled, and the table chairs went across the floor. Again, the board seemed shaken. There had never been an earthquake in that area before, but they still agreed this didn't prove anything. Again, the preacher fell to his knees and fervently prayed, Tell them I'm right. Lightning split the night, crashing through the window, split the table in half, and a voice thundered from heaven, He's right. The board members picked themselves up and brushed themselves off, looked, at ease, looked uneasily at each other, and then nodded to the chairman. The chairman then sadly spoke, it may be that God agrees with you, but you're still outvoted 12 to 2. <laughs> Depends on who's right and what side of the table you're on. You see, this morality is a morality based on majority opinion. It is majority based on what seems to be right to most of the people at the time. But God says this in Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to what? Death. What seems right won't give us life. The third final argument, Satan, simply casts doubt on God. You see, many people become atheists do so because they feel that God has somehow disappointed them, either in this life that turned against them or something happened in them, and so they turn away from God because he's just not the God they thought he should be. But in verse 5, it says this, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is saying that. Do you see what Satan is applying here? Satan is literally telling Eve that God doesn't know what's best for her. He's telling Eve that God is jealous of you. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, of this tree in the middle of the garden, that you're going to be just like him. And I want you to notice what Eve does. Notice what happens next. Eve's opinion became the standard of what was true. Her opinion became the standard. Again, what she thought was right because she listened to Satan. She saw the tree. Okay? She'd seen the tree before. I'm sure she'd been around it. That God told him, don't eat of that tree. It's in the middle of the garden. You can have all these other things, but don't eat of this or you will surely die. And all of a sudden, because of her opinion changed because of what Satan said, she saw it was good for food. That looks pretty good to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but if the doctor tells you you can't have something to eat or you're not supposed to eat this food, maybe it's pizza or donuts or pies, What's the first thing you want when you leave the doctor's office? 
You want those things. Same thing. I doubt she was even hungry, but she saw it was good for food. She noticed, number two, it was pleasing to her eye. She kind of liked the way it looked, though there was other fruit in the garden that was just as pleasing. And thirdly, desirable for obtaining wisdom. Because it was a wisdom God would deny her. It was a wisdom she didn't need, that God had it. So she took the fruit, and then as if she stuck it in God's eye, he gives them to her husband. You know, it's just like, okay, God, I'll show you. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to give it to my husband. So how do we deal with this last challenge by Satan? How do we deal with God, uh, Satan when he says, you know, it's what you want to do. What is it you really want? We need to realize that even when life doesn't turn out the way we want it, even when things happen and we don't expect it or we don't want it to happen, please remember God still cares. God still loves us. He still wants the best for us in our lives. And some of those things he takes away, some of those things he doesn't allow us to have, some of those things you shouldn't do because it'll surely kill you, you'll surely die, are the very things he may be saying, I'm doing this to give you life and have it more abundant. Romans 8, 28 says, All things work together for the good to those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. Please notice as I close what that passage doesn't say. He doesn't say all things are good, does it? He doesn't say all things are good. But what does it say? He says all things will work together for good. It may take time. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be this week. It may not be next week. It may not be in our time, but it's going to be in God's time. Folks, that is absolute truth. Nothing else matters as long as we cling to the reality that God is truth. And nothing is going to change his truth. I don't care what the world says. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what you're doing. You can tell yourself what you're doing is right. And you can tell it all you want until you even believe that it's truth. But just because we believe it, and God's word says it's not, doesn't change God's word, does it? What is truth? The truth is God loves us. God loves us to the point that he gave his only son to die for us, to be crucified for us, to go through all that he went through so that we could have the hope of eternal life. That's truth. The truth is Jesus died and he rose again on that third day because he is our Savior. That he loves us so much that he knows that we're going to fail, that we're going to make mistakes, that we're going to go through life and we're not always going to do what we're supposed to. Maybe because we get off on the wrong path. Maybe we start believing what everybody else says and we forget what God's word says. And God says, you know, I know that's going to happen. But that's okay. Because I'm a big enough God to forgive I'm a big enough God to forget. I'm a big enough God to say, I love you. You are my child, and you're going to be in heaven with me one day.